Good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West, the most haunted city in the country. Well, today is March 23rd, 82nd day of the year. 283 days remain till the year's over with. And since you all wanted to know holidays, it's National Puppy Day, World Meteorological Day, National Near Miss Day, which celebrates, for those who want more information, the day when a large asteroid missed the Earth by a mere half million miles. And that's a very near miss indeed. You have to think about what you'd do if an asteroid did collide with the Earth. How would you spend your last hours? And would you want to know what was going to happen? Hiding under the bed probably is not going to do much for you. National Chia Day. National Chip and Dip Day. Now that's an enjoyable holiday, let me tell you. Uh, Ravenclaw Pride Day. Atheist Day. National Melba Toast Day, March Madness, National Introverts Week, and we're still in Ramadan, and it's National Women's History Month. Keep that in mind. All that having been said, let's see what else we got on this date in history. 1400, the Tran Dynasty of Vietnam is deposed after 175 years of rule by uh, Okoy. Lay, a court official. 1540, Waltham Abbey surrendered to King Henry VIII of England, the last religious community to be closed during the dissolution of the monasteries. He was a piece of work, was King Henry. 1568, the Peace of Longimiel is signed, ending the second phase of the French Wars of Religion. Now that is really something to fight and kill others about how and what and who you worship. 1775, American Revolutionary War. Patrick Henry gives his famous speech, Give Me a Liberty or Give Me Death, at St. John's Episcopal Church in Richmond, Virginia, on this particular date. 1801, Tsar Paul I of Russia struck with a sword. Then he strangled and found him trampled to death inside his bedroom in St. Michael's Castle. Somebody really didn't like him. 1806, after traveling through the Louisiana Purchase and reaching the Pacific Ocean, explorers Lewis and Clark and their core discovery began their arduous journey home. 1821, Greek War of Independence, battle and fall of the city of Kalamata. Now, on about Lewis and Clark, um, we wanted to take the rest of the continent instead of just the colonies on the the east coast and according to the pope that was okay as long as there was no christian civilization being displaced so one of the things that uh, lewis and clark was looking for is there another christian civilization on this continent and if there was we needed to know about it 1839 a massive earthquake destroys the former capital inwa of the Kanbang Dynasty in present-day Myanmar. 1848, the 
ship John Wycliffe arrives at Port Chalmers carrying the first Scottish settlers by for Dunedin, New Zealand, Otago Province is founded. 1857, Elisha Otis's first elevator is installed at 488 Broadway in New York City. Probably still running. 1862, American Civil War. First battle of Kernstown in Virginia marks the start of Stonewall Jackson's Valley Campaign. And although it was a Confederate defeat, the engagement distracts federal efforts to capture Richmond. 1868, the University of California is founded in Oakland when the Organic Act is signed into law. There had to be a place for all the left to go congregate, so uh, Oakland uh, was it. 1879, War of the Pacific, Battle of Tapatir. First battle of the war is fought between uh, Chile and the Joint Forces of Bolivia and Peru. 1885, the Sino-French War, Chinese victory in the Battle of Fu Lam Tao, near uh, Hung Hao, uh, northern Vietnam. 1888, in England, the Football League, the world's oldest professional association football league, meets for the first time. 1889, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community is established by uh, Mirza Ghulam Ahmad in uh, Kwadian in British India. 1901, Emilio Aguinaldo. Only president of the First Philippines Republic is captured in uh, Palanan uh, Isabella by the forces of General Frederick Funston. 1905, Altherios Venezuelos calls for Crete's union with Greece and begins what became known as the Theresa Revolt. 1909, Theodore Roosevelt leaves New York for post presidency safari in Africa. Sponsored by the Smithsonian Institution and National Geographic Society. Frankly, I think they just wanted to get him out of the country. 1913, tornado outbreak kills more than 240 in the central U.S. One ongoing flood in the Ohio River watershed was uh, killing 650 others. 1918, First World War. On the third day of the German Spring Offensive, the 10th Battalion of the Royal West Kent Regiment is annihilated with many of the men becoming prisoners of war. 1919, in Milan, Italy, Benito Mussolini founds his fascist political movement. 1931, Bengal Singh, Sivaram Raguru, and Sukhdev Tapar are hung for the killing of a deputy superintendent of police during the Indian independence movement. In 1933, the Reichstag passes the Enabling Act of 1933, making Adolf Hitler dictator of Germany. 1935, signing of the Constitution of the Commonwealth of the Philippines took place on this date. 1939, Hungarian Air Force attacks the headquarters of the Slovak Air Force in uh, Spiska Nova Vas, killing 13 and beginning the Slovak-Hungarian War. 1940, the Lahore Resolution. It's put forward to the annual general convention of the All India Muslim League. 1956, Pakistan becomes the first Islamic Republic in the world. The date's now celebrated as Republic Day in Pakistan. 1965, NASA launches Gemini 3, the U.S. first two man spaceflight crew. That was Gus Grissom and John Young, don't you know? 1977, the first of the Nixon interviews. 
2012 will be recorded over four weeks as videotape of British journalist David Frost interviewing former President Richard Nixon about the Watergate scandal and Nixon um, tapes. 1978, the first UFL troops arrived in Lebanon for a peacekeeping mission along the Blue Line. 1980, Archbishop Oscar Romero of El Salvador gives his famous speech appealing to men of the El Salvadoran Armed Forces to stop killing other Salvadorians. 1982, Guatemala's government, headed by Fernando Romero, Lucas Garcia, is overthrown in a military coup by right-wing General Efron Rios Montt. 1983, Strategic Defense Initiative. President Reagan makes his initial proposal to develop technology to intercept enemy missiles. 1988, Angolan and Cuban forces defeat South Africa in the Battle of Quito, Guanavale. 1991, Revolutionary United Front was supported by special forces of Charles Taylor's National Patriotic Front of Liber uh, Liberia invade Sierra Leone in an attempt to overthrow Joseph Saidu Mama, which began the 11-year Sierra Leone Civil War. 1994, an election rally in Tijuana, Mexican president, presidential candidate Luis uh, Donaldo Colosio was assassinated by Mario Alberto Martinez. 1994, U.S. Air Force F-16 collides with a U.S. Air Force C-130 at Pope Air Force Base and crashes. Killed 24 U.S. Army soldiers on the ground. You know you're having a bad day when a plane falls on you. Later became known as the, the Green Ramp Disaster. Also on this date in 1994, Aeroflot 5 93, uh, 93 crashes into the Kuznetsk Ayotu Mountain, uh, Kamarovo Oblast in Russia, killing 75. 1996, Taiwan holds its first direct elections and chooses Li Ting Hui as president. 1999, gunmen assassinate Paraguay's Vice President Luis Maria Argana. 2001, the Russian Mir space station is disposed of, breaking up in the atmosphere before falling into the South Pacific Ocean near Fiji. 2003, Battle of Syria, first major conflict during the invasion of Iraq. 2008, official opening of Rajiv Gandhi International Airport in Hyderabad in India. 2009, FedEx Express Flight 80, a McDonnell Douglas MD-11 flying from Guizhou, China, crashes at Tokyo's uh, Narita International Airport, killing both the captain and the co-pilot. 2010, the Affordable Care Act becomes law in the U.S. and military and military and medical health went to crap. My humble opinion. 2018, President of Peru Pedro Pablo Kaczynski resigns from the presidency amid a mass corruption scandal before a certain impeachment by the opposition majority Congress of Peru. 2019, the Kazakh capital of Astana is renamed to uh, Nur Sultan. 2019, U.S.-backed Syrian Democratic forces captured a town of Baghuz in eastern Syria, declaring military victory over the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant. That's ISIS, don't you know? After four years of fighting, although the group maintains a scattered presence and sleeper cells across Syria and Iraq still exist. 2020, Prime Minister Boris Johnson put the UK into its first national lockdown response to COVID-19. 
And in 2021, a container ship runs aground and obstructs the Suez Canal for six days. That, of course, uh, caused a great number of uh, issues. Well, we have been talking about unsolved murders. But in actuality, there are numerous strange crimes. We're going to talk about some of those. When I say strange, I mean oddball crimes, capers, plots, all kinds of silliness. You know, just because bird testimony may not be admissible in court doesn't mean it can't influence the outcome of a case. A parent by the name of Lorenzo was owned by a Colombian drug cartel. In 2010, police raided a suspected cartel hideout in the city of Barranquilla, Colombia. Their suspicions is this was an, one of the hideouts was confirmed when Lorenzo recognized their uniforms and started squawking, run, run, you're going to get caught. According to Officer Hallman Oliveira, um, the parent was sending out alerts. He was some sort of watchbird. If you'd been a pigeon, I guess you'd say it was a stool pigeon. Now, police arrested four men in the raid and seized a large quantity of drugs, and they also took Lorenzo and two other lookout birds into custody to see if they could uh, be coaxed in revealing other information about the gang. Oliveira said, parents like to talk, and we like to listen. Colombian police estimate that as many as 2,000 parrots have been trained to act as lookouts for drug cartels. Another parrot by the name of Hercule, uh, owned by Vijay and Neelam Sharma of India. Um, 2014, Neelam Sharma was murdered by robbers who burglarized her home. Police had little to go on when they were to identify a suspect. Well, Hera the parrot was home at the time of the attack and apparently saw the crime. He provided the first clue about a week after the murder when uh, Vijay's nephew, Ashutosh Goswani, visited the house. The bird became visibly agitated, and during discussions, uh, whenever Ashutosh's name was mentioned, the parrot would start screeching. This was um, information given by Sharma to Time magazine. This raised my suspicion, and I told the police. Well, they brought Goswami in for questioning. He eventually confessed. Police also found a murder weapon and some of Nislam's jewelry in his possession. Then we got Max, an African gray parrot owned by Santa Rosa, California resident Jane Gill. And this was an incident happened in the early 1990s. Like Hercule, Max apparently witnessed his owner being murdered in her home. Two days passed before Gil's body was discovered, and when it was, Max was found in his cage nearby, hungry and dehydrated. When his health returned, he began to screech without any prompting. Richard, no, no, no. Well, Gil's friend and former housemate was a man named Richard. When other evidence pointed to Gil's business partner, Gary Rast, the police arrested and charged him. In his murder trial, Rast's attorneys tried to have the testimony of Max the Parrot introduced as evidence, but the judge refused to allow it, which I thought was very narrow-minded. When the trial ended in a mistrial in 1993, uh, Rast was tried a second time, and in March 1994, he was found guilty. A uh, DA with a big budget, if he wants you found guilty, he will get you found guilty, if he has to make up the evidence to do it. 
Well, in July of 2004, an unknown man grabbed a bag out of a car stopped at a stoplight in Sydney, Australia. The car belonged to Bradley McDonald, a local snake catcher, and in the bag was a snake he had just caught, a four-foot-long, venomous, red-bellied black snake. Uh, when being interviewed, uh, McDonald made the comment, it might teach the thief a lesson. You, um, I know during the garbage strike in um, New York years ago, um, one Christmas, uh, uh, as a joke, a lady wrapped her garbage in several gaily wrapped uh, what appeared to be Christmas presents and put them on the back seat of her car and left the window down. Came back and they were all gone. One way to dispose of your garbage. Well, in July 1996, 37-year-old Willie King snatched a wallet from the coat of an old woman on the street in Greenwich Village in New York City. The woman was 94-year-old Yolanda Giganti. That name may sound familiar because she was the mother of Vincent the Chin Giganti, head of the Genovese crime family, one of the country's most powerful criminal organizations. Well, King was caught a short time later, and as soon as he realized who he'd mugged, he agreed to plead guilty to grand larceny. His sentence um, was three years in prison. According to his lawyer, uh, what what his lawyer told the judge, my client admitted his guilt the earliest opportunity because he wants to be, uh, put this incident behind him, and he hopes the Giganti family will do the same. Uh, they were going to put something all right, but it wasn't the issue behind them. You know, there's been a lot of stories in the news about carjacking. And carjacking is certainly terrifying. You're sitting in your car at a stoplight, and suddenly a thug runs up to your window with a gun and demands you get out and get in the car. And there's not a lot of ways to prevent such a... Well, actually, it's a speedy crime. But in South Africa, where a carjack was an epidemic, an inventor did figure out a way to punish carjackers before they get away with it. He used fire. Lots of fire. Charles Foray introduced the blaster to the South African car peripheral market in 1998 at a price of uh, 3,900 rand. That's about $655 uh, in 1998 uh, values. First sign of trouble, the driver activates the, vector, the blaster from the steering column. It squirts flammable liquid from a holding tank in the trunk out of two nozzles under the driver's side door. Then it emits an electric spark, which ignites the gas and, in theory, the carjacker as well. That would certainly uh, cut down on carjacking, unless they were smart enough to run around to the other side of the car. Well, let's talk about a case of uh, rich kids being up to no good. 1924. The body of a boy was found nude and drowned in a culvert in Wolf Lake, Indiana. He'd been hit in the head and then suffocated. Police identified the victim as Bobby Franks, the son of a Chicago millionaire. And nearby, police found a pair of ex expensive pair of glasses that eventually traced a 19-year-old Nathan Leopold. Leopold had spent the day with Richard Loeb, uh, just a cousin of Bobby Franks. On police questioning, both men broke down and confessed to killing Franks, and each one said the other one did it. Well, Leopold and Loeb were graduate students at the University of Chicago. They were brilliant scholars who were pampered by their wealthy families and 
The teens came to believe they were superior beings of what the philosopher Nietzsche called supermen. And to prove their status, they decided they'd commit a perfect crime. They picked up Franks in their car, hit him in the head with a chisel, and then suffocated him. And after throwing his clothes into the bush and pouring acid on his corpse to try to slow down identification, the pair notified the Franks that their son had been kidnapped, and they asked for $10,000 in ransom. Yeah, before the supermen could get their money, though, Bobby's body was found and identified, and so are Leopold's glasses. Well, the two were represented by American trial lawyer Clarence Darrow. Expected to argue that the pair was innocent by reason of insanity, Darrow stunned the country when he made them plead guilty. First, to avoid a vengeful jury and give sentencing power to a thoughtful judge. There are also brought in psychiatrist, uh, psychiatric experts who testified to the immaturity and emotionally diseased state of these teenage defendants. He also reminded the court that it was capable of mercy, unlike his uh, deranged clients. So they got a thoughtful verdict. Life plus 99 years. Now, Dara's Closing argument took 12 hours, still referred to an anti-death penalty argument. The men he'd saved became model prisoners, running a school to educate other prisoners. In 1936, Loeb was murdered by another inmate. And in 1958, Leopold was paroled. Moved to Puerto Rico, where he worked at a hospital and dreamed of making a great medical breakthrough to be remembered as a hero instead of a killer. Didn't quite work out that way, though. He died in 1971. Let's talk about the story behind one of India's best-known unsolved mysteries. It's called the Stoneman case, and it spans two periods and two locations. first period was from 1985 to 1988 in Bombay, and the second from June to December 1989 in Calcutta. During this particular time, 25 people were killed, 12 in the first three years and 13 uh, more, just over six months in Calcutta. The period by which the Stoneman took his victims' lives was especially macabre and earned him uh, that very strange nickname. In all the cases, somebody slept into a destitute person's sleeping uh, arrangement uh, who was sleeping outside, alone on a street or in an alley, and dropped a large stone weighing about 50 pounds on the victim's head crushing that person's skull and killing the victim instantly. Now, Indian police weren't convinced the two sets of murders were carried out by the same person, saying instead the Calcutta murders were probably carried out by a copycat. Since 1989, several similar cases have emerged, and authorities are unsure if this is the work of the same person or just another copycat who are writing on the notoriety of the Stoneman murders. And amazingly enough, there has never been a single suspect in regard to the killings. Now, sometimes it's obvious that some of these crooks are not playing with the full deck. A Boise man stole a dog at gunpoint, then uh, tucked his gun in the waistband and the, the back of his pants and drove off with the dog. But the gun would 
began to bother him while he was driving, and he reached back to reposition it and shot himself in the ass. Then when he tried to remove the gun from his pants, he shot himself in the butt again. Hospitalized in serious condition, and the dog was returned to its home. All that would have been needed to make it perfect was for the dog to bite him while he was uh, shooting himself. Now, another case reported by the Chicago Sun-Times, a man who had committed crimes in Morgantown, West Virginia, was curious to know if the police suspected him. So he walked up to two officers and asked if there were any arrest warrants out on him. Duh, there were. Let's talk about the Medford Mail Tribune story. Roger Yost, who was 40 years old, and William Isberg, who was also 40, were arrested in Fairbanks, Alaska, when they tried to heist a 500-pound safe from Moose Lodge Hall. It was probably a nifty plan, but they forgot one thing. They arrived at the lodge on bicycles. How are you going to balance a 500-pound safe on a bicycle? Well, let's talk about the story of the mob accountant. Born Mayor Sechelonsky, 1902, in Gordon, Russia, Meyer Lansky came to New York with his city as a child. And a very studious, known as a good Jewish boy, according to all the reports, until he teamed up with Bugsy Siegel to form the, the Jewish Bugs and Meyer mob. Now, the small statue Lansky provided the planning and the financial know-how, and Siegel and his friends carried, provided the muscle. Now, in 1920, Prohibition was the law of the land, so uh, Lansky and Siegel joined forces with their old friend Lucky Luciano, and they made a fortune selling liquor to speakeasies. 1931, Lansky helped uh, Luciano rise to power and create uh, La Cosa Nostra, this thing of ours. You may know it as the Mafia. La Cosa Nostra grew so powerful that Lansky later described it as bigger than U.S. Steel. And the mob was pulling in millions, and the bosses were coming to Lansky for financial advice. Some historians actually insist that uh, Lansky was nicknamed the Mob Accountant, and he actually ran the Mafia through Luciano. Now, Lansky stayed under law enforcement's radar, and after Prohibition ended, Lansky opened illegal gambling casinos in New York, New Orleans, and Florida. They were so profitable when Lansky wanted to open some offshore casinos in 1950, Cuban director of Fugia, one more time, Fugencio Batista, welcomed him into Havana. Bugsy Siegel's hotel casino in Vegas lost so much money, the commission had him killed in 1947. It's believed that Lansky actually ordered the execution of his old friend. But Lansky stayed in power because he just made crime pay. Well, even Lansky couldn't win forever. In 1959, he lost $7 million in mob money when Fidel Castro overthrew Batista and nationalized Cuba's casinos. In the 1970s, the feds went after him, so he fled to Israel. Two years later, he was deported back to the U.S., and on his return in 73, he faced income tax evasion charges, but uh, wouldn't you know, he was acquitted. What brought down uh, Al Capone could not touch Lansky. He never spent a day in jail, but the FBI claimed he had millions stashed away when he died of lung cancer in 1983. 
Forbes magazine believed it as well, listing him among their 400 wealthiest people in America in 1982. Well, you know, quite often, enterprising individuals will um, counterfeit uh, very popular items. And the world's most counterfeited items are the Louis Vuitton purses. The company estimates only 1% of the Louis Vuitton purchases uh, in circulation are actually authentic. Well, in 2001, Sean Myers drove his pickup truck into Lens Market in Wellsville, Pennsylvania. He drove it backward, crashed through the window, and tried to steal the ATM machine by dragging it with a chain attached to the truck. Well, that didn't work. He couldn't get it out of the store. A few days later, he went back and crashed his truck through the plywood that had covered the broken window and tried to steal the ATM again. Failed one more time. A few days after that, he drove through the front window near my uh, Rudder's Farm store. And this time, he actually got away with the ATM, bouncing along behind the truck until they hit a parked car and broke free. Several months later, Myers returned to Lens Market, drove through the Lens window again, chained up the ATM, and drove off. This time, the ATM stayed with him. He got away and broke into the machine to find, to his dismay, there was no money in it. Well, he went back to complain about the fact there was no money in the ATM and he was arrested in order to pay thousands of dollars in restitution and given six years in prison. When the judge asked him why he needed the money, he said, well, he tried to steal the ATMs because he needed money for court costs from previous trials. Duh. Two men in Benicia, California, did almost everything right. They had ski masks, semi-automatic handguns, they burst into the bank and ordered everybody to lie down on the floor. Then they went behind the counter to get the money. Now that's where the flaw in their plan came to light. There was no money. Dad broke it into a credit union that didn't use cash. Well, at that point they said to hell with it and disappeared. Well... You know, sometimes headlines tell you everything you need to know about the story. One interesting headline was man who crashed through Sladell Airport gate arrested in an underwear after alleged encounter with a snake. Now that alone might get your attention, but it left one important detail out of the headline. Voodoo was involved. Suspect was 43-year-old Kevin Bolton of Hattiesburg, Mississippi. And this incident took place in October 2017 in Louisiana. According to reports, Bolton drove his Chevy to the small airport and crashed through one gate, then entered through another gate and crashed into a telephone pole that fell onto his truck. Well, he fled the scene and was found two hours later lying in his underwear in the middle of a nearby road. Told officers he was in town to see a voodoo doctor. But at some point... And this they could never explain. A snake clammed into his pants that caused the accident and caused him to take off his pants. Police had a different explanation. They said uh, he may have been under the influence of a narcotic. Now, 
Sometimes, as Flip Wilson used to say, the devil made him do it. Bryce Edward Bennett Jr., 52 years old from York County, Pennsylvania, appealed a July 2013 conviction for shoplifting, claiming there was a lack of evidence in his original case. So the appeals court judge took a look at all the evidence. First thing he saw was several supermarket employees saw Bennett with overloaded pockets running out of the store. Secondly, a police officer testified he saw hot dogs fly out of Bennett's pocket as he tried to run away. And third, when the officer caught Bennett, there was a pork loin and a shrimp wheel stuffed inside his pocket. Well, in spite of the iffy nature of all the evidence, the judge decided that there was sufficient evidence the conviction stood. In Frederick, Maryland, after a tattoo shop was burglarized, the shop owner looked at the surveillance video and saw the burglars had covered their faces. But one of them, Max Goranson, forgot to cover up his arms, one of which had a large tattoo that had been recently applied at the shop he burgled. Duh. Well, in 2014, police in the Netherlands got a call from a crying drunk man who said he was trapped inside a building. He told him he'd broken a wind and tried to steal some things, but he couldn't find his way out. So the police came and got him and jailed him. Gave him time to compose himself. Well, let's talk about the murder of Vicki Morgan. She was a model, longtime mistress of Alfred Bloomingdale, one of the wealthiest men in America. He was the heir to the Bloomingdale department store fortune and a member of Ronald Reagan's kitchen cabinet. I mean, he was highly placed in society. On July 7th, 1983, Morgan was found in her apartment, beaten to death with a baseball bat. Her roommate, Marvin Pattenkost, confessed to doing it. Now... Morgan had been Bloomingdale's mistress for 12 years. When Bloomingdale contracted terminal throat cancer and was hospitalized, his wife Betsy cut off Morgan's income, which reportedly had been between uh, ten dollars and $18,000 a month. In response, Morgan decided to go public. First, she tried to publish her memoir, Alfred's Mistress, and that fizzled, apparently because of uh, White House pressure. She filed a $10 million palimony suit against Bloomingdale in which she revealed all of Bloomingdale's indiscretions. She described him as a drooling sadist with the fondness for bondage and beatings. Also accused him of loose talk about secret and delicate matters such as campaign contributions for Mr. Reagan. Case was thrown out, but the trial was an enormous embarrassment to the Democrats and high-ranking Republican officials. Now, the, the roommate, Pancoast, had a history of mental illness. He previously confessed to crimes he didn't commit, including the Tate-LaBianca murders committed by the Manson family. He insisted he was the one that killed him. Bloomingdale may have used Morgan to gather dirt on top-level Republican officials. Reportedly, Bloomingdale had his Hollywood house wired with state-of-the-art video cameras in every room and hidden behind false walls. Anybody who was important in the pre-administration, the administration of Ronald Reagan, and who wanted to... Uh, Divertishment uh, called on Alfred, regardless of what his or her fetish might be. 
and Bloomingdale apparently got it all on tape. Morgan's apartment wasn't sealed with the L.A. Police Department until more than 24 hours after the murder. According to author Anne Louise Bardock, people could just walk in and walk out, and if there was any sex tape in the condo, they could easily have disappeared during that 24-hour period. The night before she was killed, according to her friend, Gordon uh, Basicius, uh, Vicky confided to me she was afraid of being murdered. And I have a feeling that someone with knowledge of the Bloomingdale tapes had approached her, possibly through Pancoast, with a proposal for blackmail. Well, the end result, there were two possible conclusions. Pancoast killed her. I mean, he did confess and was sentenced for the, for the murder. Or someone in power had Morgan killed, and if the videotapes did exist, they would have been severely damaging to the Reagan administration. And as Nancy said, just say, oh. Well, what happens when you're falsely accused? You're going along, doing your thing, having a good time, and somebody accuses you of a crime he didn't commit. In this first case, we're going to talk about Francis Evelyn, 58, a custodian at Brooklyn's Public School 91 in New York City. Spent nearly 20 years on the job, well-respected at work in his neighborhood. In 2007, police officers arrived at PS-91, arrested him, cuffed him, and took him away for questioning. Police commissioner announced that um, he was accused of the heinous crime of raping an 8-year-old student on multiple occasions. They said they even had DNA evidence against him. And the police took the unorthodox step of locking him up in Rikers Island prison with actual murderers and rapists. Well, it took three days before they got around to interviewing him. Turned out, um, interviewing the accuser, that is. Turns out she was known as a troubled child who'd lied about being abused on previous occasions. Worse still, she described her attacker as a bald white man. But the police immediately arrested Evelyn, who was, uh, Francis Evelyn, who was black. Charges were dropped, but the story had already gained worldwide attention. On the bus home, um, Francis Everlin said, a woman was reading the paper with my picture on the cover. Headline said, The Rapist. He couldn't walk down the street without people pointing at him or insulting him. So he sued the city of New York for $10 million. Well, what's interesting... A defense lawyer, Philip Robertson, was trying to make a dramatic point in front of the jury as his client, uh, as it, uh, his client's recent robbery trial in Dallas. He pointed the pistol used in the crime at the jury box, causing two of the jurors to fling their arms in front of their faces and others to gasp. Although Robertson, Robertson was arguing that his client should be sentenced only to probation, the horrified judge gave him 13 years and threw Robertson out of the courtroom. That was reported in Oregonian in 1997. Well, this next case involved a uh, plaintiff, a Polish hunter named Waldemar. The defendant was Jaworski. Jack Drayson, a German travel agency that specializes in African hunting expeditions. 
Waldemar really wanted to shoot an elephant. So in 2010, he booked a vacation with Jaworski, Jack Drayson, to send him to a game reserve in uh, Zimbabwe, one of the few countries where it's still legal to hunt elephants. Waldemar was told that if he found an elephant's uh, excrement, he could pick up the animal's trail and shoot it. Well, he didn't find excrement. He didn't find any elephants, and he came home empty-handed. Well, he complained, and the agency gave him a free trip back to Zimbabwe, and this time he shot and killed an elephant. Nevertheless, he sued the travel agency for $130,000 for failing to provide him with an elephant to kill on the first trip. Well, after a long and detailed evaluation, uh, the case was dismissed. The judge remarked, the fact the elephants weren't encountered during the first hunt doesn't testify elephants weren't there. Maybe you just didn't find them. Well, sometimes people react in the strangest ways. After a neighbor's dog... um, pooped on his lawn. Walter Travis, 68, shot the neighbor several times. Did not shoot the dog. Danny Jen stole a garbage truck at gunpoint because the truck's driver kept using his driveway to turn around. And that would have me upset as well. Kevin French, 45, shot his neighbor in the head with an air rifle because he mowed his lawn too often. Well, the neighbor recovered. I don't know that French ever did. Well, you know, the Chinese have interesting customs. They've got a term, Ding Zui. And that's a Chinese term for hiring somebody to stand trial and serve time on someone else's behalf. Term ta- uh, translated substitute criminal. And uh, I think we have seen a lot of that out of especially this Congress. Well, you think crime pays? Savannah, Georgia man wanted to steal guns from the back of a squad car parked near a police station. After he climbed into the back seat, he realized he'd made an error. The back doors of a police car lock automatically when somebody gets inside. He couldn't get out. Police arrested him uh, a few minutes later. Next case, cornered by police in Charles City, Virginia, a drug dealer carrying a 12 bags of cocaine ran into a forest to escape. Trees, the trees and the underbrush were thick. He was certain the police would lose him. Well, he must have forgotten he was wearing those sneakers that light up as you take a step. Police followed the blinking lights through the forest and straight at him. Then we got another interesting case. A person walking by a convenience store in Detroit Lakes, Minnesota, was stopped by a man asking a favor. The man informed the passers-by he planned to rob the store but needed a disguise. So he gave that person a dollar to go inside and buy him a scarf to cover his face. Well, the enterprising bystander took the dollar, went inside the convenience store, and called the police. Duh. Let's talk about Bernie Lee and Boren Austin Curry. 
They were twins, both 19. In May of 2002, both brothers are being held at the Durham County Jail in North Carolina. Bernick Lee was waiting trial for murder, and Breon was being held on an unrelated robbery charge. Well, on the day that Breon was scheduled to be released, the jail's computer crashed, and the guards, working from a handwritten list of inmates to be released, went to Bernick Lee's cell and asked him if he was uh, Breon. Um, Bernick said yes. His face matched the photo. I mean, he was a twin, for God's sake. And he gave the right home address. Well, he spent about seven hours on the outside and then turned himself back in. He played guilty to second-degree murder, sentenced to nine to 12 years in prison. County officials never figured out if Breon played any part in this particular snafu. Jail's director, Lieutenant Colonel George Nader, uh, excuse me, Naylor, said, I have no information to believe that, but I have no information not to believe it either. Then we got another couple of twins, Carrie and David Moore. They were 27. Both brothers were serving time in the Nebraska State Penitentiary in October 1984. One afternoon, they met up in a conference room in the prison, switched clothes when nobody was looking. Afterwards, Carrie, posing as David, was released in the prison yard, and David, posing as Carrie, was escorted back to Carrie's cell. Well, the ruse was exposed when Carrie reported for David's kitchen duty. Kitchen supervisor realized David wasn't David and reported the incident to the guards. Well, when they were confronted, the twins actually confessed. Unlikely they would have been able to keep it up much longer. David was serving a four to six years for burglary, and Carrie was awaiting execution on death row. Why you would want to disguise yourself as somebody facing execution is beyond me, but folks are funny. Then we got Tony and Terry Litton. They were 19. Tony was serving a two-year sentence for burglary when Terry came to visit him in March 1990. Somehow the brothers managed to strip down to their underwear and switch clothes in the middle of a bustling guarded visitor's room. When the visit was up, Terry went back to Tony's cell and Tony walked out of the prison with the rest of the visitors. Well, a word of advice to identical twins. If you're planning to trade places, don't have your names tattooed on the backs of your neck. They did. When an inmate noticed that Terry, uh, Tony's name now read Terry, he alerted a guard. There's squealers every place. Tony was caught three days later and returned to jail to serve out his full sentence. No question of parole this time. Plus extra time, and Terry served some time of his own from helping him. Well, you know, sometimes vigilante justice is uh, called for. In this particular case, Roy Gendron broke into a home in Alabama. Homeowner's son, Richard Busey, caught Gendron loading furniture and other items onto his truck and Busey had a gun in his car, and he pulled it on Gendron. But he didn't have a telephone, didn't know what to do next, so he made the burglar mow the lawn with a push mower. While well, he thought about it. He eventually took Gendron's driver's license, which the police used to track down the rest of the thief a short time later. Assistant DA Brian McVeigh told reporters if he ever found himself in a similar situation, I'll try to get some yard work out of the guy. Then in 2003, 18-year-old Michael Watt walked into a health food store, pulled out a knife, and demanded money. 
You know, there was one employee, 48-year-old Lorraine Avery, and she refused to give him any money. She said, he's not having our money. I worked hard for it. So she looked for something to hit him with and couldn't find anything, so she grabbed an industrial-sized bottle of salad dressing, pointed at him, and told him to get out. Well, he wouldn't go, so she started squirting with salad dressing. She said he kept coming at me with the knife, and I kept squirting him, and finally it worked. Would be what Robert ran out of the store, and police tracked him down by following the trail of salad dressing that fell off of him. Well, let's talk about one of history's funniest and boldest impostors. In 1906, shoemaker and career criminal Wilhelm Vaught was released from a German prison after a 15-year sentence for robbery. His identity card and passport were confiscated, and he was absolutely broke. And then he remembered how he had learned to mimic the speech and mannerisms of Prussian officers, his boots he'd mended when he was young, and it gave him an idea. He bought a second-hand army uniform, went to the local army barracks, when a corporal and five privates came marching by, he stepped in, started barking orders, and became the leader of this little group. They marched down the road, collecting five more men and a, a bus along the way. And once in Kaepernick, Volt marched his men into town hall, and after pretending to inspect the accounts, he had the, the mayor arrest and helped himself to 4,000 marks from the treasury. The mayor was sent in custody to military headquarters in Berlin, and Captain Volt disappeared. Nine days later, Vaught was captured and arrested, and the story made headlines around the world and unintentionally brought world attention to the abuses of the German prison system. Some believe that uh, Kaiser Wilhelm pardoned a lifelong crook had already spent 27 of his 57 years in prison for petty crimes because he found the whole ordeal incredibly funny. And certainly it was quite interesting. You know, committing crime looks glamorous and fun when you watch it on TV or on the big screen, but try it in real life, and the results are uh, often not so funny. In the 1971 film The Godfather, Corleone, family henchman, intimidated a Hollywood mogul by killing his prized racehorse and sticking the horse's head in his bed. 1997, two New York crooks decided to use a similar method to intimidate a witness scheduled to testify against him. On the morning of the trial, the witness found an unwelcome surprise on his doorstep. According to one of the crooks, we wanted to leave a cow's head because his wife is from India and they consider cows sacred. And since he couldn't find a cow's head in Brooklyn, they went to a butcher's and got a, a goat's head. I thought it was close enough that it should work. It didn't. They were both convicted. 1996, 17-year-old Steve Barone of Royal Palm Beach, Florida, was really into Pulp Fiction, Reservoir Dogs, and Goodfellas. When he was caught trying to rob a gun store, he claimed he'd been taken over by another personality, a combination of the wise guys from uh, those three crime movies. Well, the judge rejected what the press called the Pulp Fiction defense and sentenced Mr. Vincent Vega Henry Hill White to four years in prison. Clearly, you can't win them all. Now, over the course of 14 months in 1984 and 1985, a maniacal serial killer terrorized Los Angeles, targeting his victims at random. The string of home invasions, the nature of which are a little bit too graphic to describe uh, on this show, 
had left at least a dozen people dead. Police had few leads in the case until a partial fingerprint on a stolen car led them to Richard Ramirez, a 25-year-old satanic drug addict who fit the description. And he'd been trouble, in trouble with the law before. Well, Ramirez's mugshot was plastered everywhere in a massive manhunt was undertaken. Ramirez didn't know anything about it. He spent the night on a bus ride home from Arizona. When he got out of the Greyhound station in East Los Angeles on the one August morning, he got off the bus and walked right past officers who were looking for somebody getting on the bus. Ramirez, wearing a Jack Daniels T-shirt, walked into a corner store, and an old woman saw him and yelled, Elmaton, which roughly translated as the killer. Ramirez looked at the woman, noticed his own face on the front page of the paper, and took out running. Crossed the highway, jumped a fence, started running through backyards, where, according to L.A. Police Commander William Booth, at least one man hit him with a barbecue utensil. Ramirez escaped that, and eventually he found himself in another when he tried to jump into a running Ford Mustang that belonged to 60-year-old Faustino Pincon's daughter. Um, Faustino was underneath the car working on it. He shimmed out and was able to grab Ramirez before he could drive away. And Ramirez said, I have a gun. And the man said, I don't care what you have. You're not taking my daughter's car. Ramirez then jumped out and ran across the street and tried to steal Angela De La Torre's car. She screamed for her husband who ran out, grabbed a metal pipe, and whacked Ramirez over the head with it. By this point, several other neighbors were involved in the fight. Before Ramirez knew it, he was bleeding and being chased down Herbert Street by several of his men. Eventually, they caught up and beat the crap out of the Night Stalker. Well, I'm going to end with a quote from that outstanding philosopher, G. Gordon Liddy. Obviously, crime pays or there'd be no crime. And certainly that is quite correct, I would suspect. On that note, we come to the end of today's show. We'll be back tomorrow and talk about some more. Strange and unusual crimes. Until then, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a truly great evening. <laughs>